welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. We're going to begin a series of messages in the book of Isaiah. For about the last 18 months, probably maybe a little more, I've been reading and studying in the book of Isaiah. It's, it's a book that has always held a profound and deep fascination for me. It's been a book throughout my journey that the Lord has really spoken to me from. And as I read through my Bible sort of consecutively, whenever it is I, I come to the book of Isaiah, there's always something in me that sort of, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, I'm ready for this because it's been out of that book that so often the Lord has speak, spoken to me. But as I was thinking about this some two years ago, I, I really have to admit that I was coming to the contents of the book, looking for that Rima kind of quickened word to my circumstances, without ever really having come to terms with what Isaiah was saying to his listeners, to his readers perhaps. And, uh, and I, I realized that was, you know, that, that shouldn't be the way I was approaching the book. So as I say, 18 months ago, I started on a bit of a journey to try and set that wrong right and try and get to the grips with what this prophet was about. And over the last 18 months, I've poured over this book to try and gain some understanding. I, I did a university level course of about 30 hours just in, in the book. Um, I've read commentaries. I mean, some of them are tomes, mate, two volumes. When I'm finished with them, I'm not going to put them on Trade Me. I'm going to sell them to the United States for chocks, you know, that they put under the wheels of their aircraft on aircraft carriers. They are, they are that big. Um, so I've gone from knowing absolutely nothing about the book of Isaiah to pretty much knowing nothing about the book of Isaiah. And I want to sh- share the pretty much nothing that I've learned with, with you. Um, I found it an incredibly daunting book. Um, if you've done any work on Isaiah, you'll know that the commentaries on it just could fill pages and pages. There are literally hundreds of commentaries on just one aspect of Isaiah, the mysterious servant songs that you find later in his book. Um, it's massive in size. It's not exactly, you know, um, big messages from little books. This has got 66 chapters in it, and it's the biggest book in the Bible short of the book of Psalms. Um, its historical setting is varied, it seems distant and sometimes opaque. Its organization and its composition at times seems somewhat disjointed and fragmented. It's a complex book. At times its poetic language can sometimes make the message that Isaiah seems to be trying to get across somewhat veiled. So you might be thinking, well, given all that, why bother? Why don't you just stick to the New Testament? I mean, if you want to be a masochist, then you go ahead, but don't inflict your sickness on us. Well, the problem with that is that if you want to understand the New Testament, Isaiah is really an essential um, undergirding foundation of your understanding of the New Testament. Isaiah is sometimes referred to as the fifth gospel. Fifth gospel. It's probably the Old Testament book that has had the most influence on shaping the way the New Testament has come to us. 
With the exception of the Psalms, it's the most quoted book in the New Testament. It's been suggested by some scholars that the Gospel of Mark, which was probably the first of the Gospels that was written, was clearly structured around the book of Isaiah. I suspect, and we'll talk about this maybe some other time, but I suspect that Jesus derived the majority of his sense of self-identity out of Isaiah and probably particularly out of the servant songs. Now, when we come to talk about Isaiah, immediately some of you will recall some very well-worn passages. You know, when you think of Isaiah, there are some verses that most of us could say, oh, yeah, yeah, I think that's in Isaiah. For example, Isaiah 7 and verse 14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Every Christmas we hear that and we mostly know that that comes from Isaiah. Then, of course, around Christmas time too, we quote Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Most of us can connect that with Isaiah. Perhaps some can connect Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, where it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Classic Isaiah. Then, of course, you come to the end of the book, Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Most of us, again, know that's Isaiah. And then, of course, Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. We mostly, if you've been around for any length of time, can connect those passages with the book of Isaiah. Um, Just as an aside, for those of you who perhaps uh, like classical music, you'll be aware that Handel's Messiah quotes more from the book of Isaiah than any other place in the Bible. However, Having said that, I suspect that while we know those passages reasonably well, there are huge swathes of Isaiah's work that you will be unfamiliar with. Um, Isaiah has sometimes been described as the whole Bible in miniature. It's as if God took the whole of the Bible and squeezed it down into this one book. While it does have some quite complex structures to it, one well-known and obviously agreed-on division in the book is into two parts. Chapter 1 to 39, part 1, and chapters 40 through 66 is part 2. Those two sections are very different from each other in terms of subject, context, atmosphere, and style. So much so that many scholars believe they are written by different people. We'll talk about that in a minute or two. Notice that there are 39 chapters in part one, 27 chapters in part two. Now, I'm I'm very aware that the chapter divisions of the Bible are not inspired and that they were added at a much later date. However, coincidentally, there are 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. And the astonishing thing about Isaiah is that the atmosphere of the first 39 books really is the atmosphere of the Old Testament. 
And the 27 books of Isaiah's second section is much more like the atmosphere of the New Testament. In the first part, there is more bad news than good news. In the second part, there's more good news than bad news. Having said that, though, what you'll find in the way Isaiah structures the book is that he can be talking about good news and then abruptly moves into bad news for a moment and then flicks back to good news. And the the opposite is true. He can be talking about bad news and then quickly he'll flick into good news and then back out of the good news into the bad news again. The first part is more to do with sin and retribution. The second, more to do with salvation and redemption. The first 39 chapters has more about justice. The second, 27, has more about mercy. The first part is about confrontation. The second, about consolation. In the first part of the book, historically, the nation of Assyria is in dominance, both culturally and militarily. In the latter part of the book, it's the nation of Babylon. We refer to the first part of the book as pre-exilic. That means before they went into exile. Obviously, the last part of the book is post-exilic. That's after they're in exile. The first part of the book has a kind of more a present orientation. The latter part of the book perhaps is more future in its orientation. Interestingly enough, the second part of the book, which starts off at chapter 40, breaks into comfort ye, comfort ye my people. And so it starts off with comfort and consolation. And then in verse three of chapter 40, it says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. And of course, you'll know that that's the cry of John the Baptist. As the New Testament era opens, that's the cry. Interestingly enough that Isaiah 65 and 66, as it finishes, talks about the new heavens and the new earth, which is exactly how the New Testament concludes in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Now, I know this is not going to thrill you too much, but in order to examine the message of Isaiah, we really do have to have some understanding of its historical context. And so what I want to do this morning is just basically introduce you to the background of Isaiah, and then in two weeks' time, we'll come back and we'll start to get into the book itself. What we have to understand is God's revelation is always incarnational. It's always mediated in and through a specific time and space. Now, I know history doesn't excite everyone, but if you want to be faithful to what Isaiah is saying, you have to know who and what he was talking to and about. So as you look at Isaiah, it seems to cover three very distinct historical periods. Chapter 1 to 39, as I said, what we call pre-exilic. That means The nation of Israel, the ten tribes in the north, and the nation of Judah, the two tribes of the south, were still in their land. They hadn't yet been taken off into exile. So this period, for those of you who are perhaps interested and want to follow it through, covers about 739 BC to 701 BC, the the 8th century. At that time, the major political power uh, was the nation of Assyria. So I've got a map, and you can see uh, how the dark green, then the darker green, then the light green, um, how this nation expanded its territory. Assyria had a long and impressive history. It was the major force in that region for nearly 500 years. Just before and around the time of Isaiah, the Assyrian nation kind of went off the boil, as it were. 
they had a series of quite weak leaders. And during the vacuum that those weak leaders created, the nation of Israel in the north and the nation of Judah in the south began to expand. The northern kingdom, Israel, was ruled by a very wicked king called Jeroboam II. The southern kingdom of Judah was ruled by a mostly godly king called Uzziah. And with the um, Assyrian vacuum, these two nations swelled and enjoyed a period of relative peace and prosperity. The two nations, uh, blue being the kingdom of Israel, the yellow there being the king of Judah, um, in, in, the two top, in the, the, the top nation, the two prophets who ministered there at this time were Amos and Hosea. Isaiah and Micah ministered into the southern kingdom. Now the prophets speaking to the northern kingdom and to Jeroboam II were essentially saying, listen, prosperity doesn't equal favor. God is not pleased with the way you are living. You change your ways or judgment will come. They largely ignored those messages and went on their merry way enjoying their prosperity and peace. But the complacency of Israel and Judah during this time of peace and prosperity became rudely interrupted by an Assyrian king by the name of Tiglath-Pileser III. He ascended the throne. He was a very strong and aggressive leader and he immediately set to sort right the vacuum that had been created by the weaker leaders. He set about reasserting Assyrian dominance and control throughout the area. And so he moved north against these nations. As he moved north, obviously northern Israel and then Judah lay directly in his path and plan of expansion. Now the book of Isaiah opens when Jeroboam II in the north and Uzziah in the south have both just died. And the two new kings who replace them face an immediate threat to their very existence. The northern kingdom makes an alliance with Syria. You can see to the right and to the top, the kingdom of Aram and Damascus, that's Syria. So the blue portion makes an alliance with Syria in an attempt to create a coalition of nations that will stop Assyria making its way south. And you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 15 and 16. As they're creating this coalition, these kings um, of Israel and Syria, Pekah and Rezin respectively, approach the new king of Judah, whose name is Ahaz, and they try and enlist him into this anti-Assyrian coalition, but he refuses to join them. They immediately think, ah, okay, so he could align himself with Assyria and actually get in Assyria's good books by attacking us from the rear, as it were. So they decide to attack Judah and subdue it and replace Ahaz with a king of their choosing. That would allow them, obviously, not to worry about being attacked from the south, and they could concentrate all of their efforts on the northern front and the coming battle with Assyria. So they make this attack against Judah, and that's outlined if you want to follow it through in 2 Kings chapter 16 and 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Ahaz, the king of Judah and his people, are absolutely petrified. Isaiah comes to them and says, don't be afraid, and don't align yourself with Assyria. Trust God. Well, contrary to Isaiah's advice, Ahaz appeals to Assyria for help. 
Now, appealing to this nation of Assyria for help is like one mouse appealing to the cat to help against another mouse. In such a situation, only the cat wins. Now, the crucial issue here, and it's an issue that will recur as a recurring motif through the book of Isaiah, is about who do you trust when difficult times come? Rather, not so much what nation, but, but whom does your trust rest in? Um, Isaiah tells King Ahaz, and later on tells King Hezekiah, who faces almost the identical situation that Ahaz did later in his reign. He says, don't resort to human wisdom. In the face of trying circumstances, don't make political alliances with ungodly nations. Trust in Yahweh. These two kings face a problem with aggressive Assyria, and they form a bookend of these of this 39 chapters. It starts in chapter 7, and then again in chapters 38, 39, you've got Hezekiah facing exactly the same issues. Who will you put your trust in? So the first 39 chapters then is um, facing the nation of Assyria and its aggressive uh, intentions to expand. Now, the second historical period starts... Uh, in chapter 40, and comes as a complete surprise, actually, because there is a radical break between chapter 39 and chapter 40. The historical contexts of those two portions are very different. Between those two chapters is nearly 200 years, okay? Isaiah's prophecies in the first part of the book have all come true. The northern kingdom is swept away by the Assyrians, and the slightly godlier Judah are a little slower. They survive for another 150 years, but then the Babylonians come and God's judgment is poured out on the southern nation who have gone the same way as their northern brothers. Isaiah doesn't even talk about that. He doesn't talk about the fall of Jerusalem. It's not even mentioned by him. It happens in that gap. Now, Jeremiah and Ezekiel both speak in detail about the fall of Jerusalem and the the exile to Babylon, but Isaiah's second part of the prophecy picks up when the exile in Babylon is nearly over. So they were in Babylon for 70 years. So Isaiah flicks from chapter 39, 200 years into the future, and starts talking to the exiles who are about to be released from their Babylonian captivity. This portion largely are messages of hope to an exiled people, and it covers chapters 40 through 55. Now, the third period, okay, you can see how complex this is. Hang in there a bit with me. It's just kind of background, but the third period happens about 20 years after they are back in the land. So you've got the first 39 chapters pre-exilic, a 200-year break, Isaiah prophesies to a people who are about to be released from Babylonian captivity, and the third period is 20 years since they've been home. And he's really giving messages to a period who, though they are back in the land, are still facing significant difficulties and are wondering, where are all God's promises? Now, for students of the Bible, and this may or may not interest you, these three really distinct periods of time raise an immediate question. How could there just be one author? How could Isaiah write about and describe in incredibly accurate detail people and situations that weren't to happen for another 150 years, nearly 200 years after, after his life? 
So Isaiah chapter one, verse one, introduces us to the author of the book, Isaiah ben Amos, Isaiah the son of Amos. Sometimes he's referred to as Isaiah of Jerusalem. And it's traditionally accepted that he wrote the first 39 chapters of the book. All that happens in that portion of the book fall within the compass of his lifetime. But then scholars ask, did he write the remainder? Did he write chapters 40 to 55? For example, the events described here occur 150 years after Isaiah of Jerusalem had died, and then the 56 to 66 are even further removed. If Isaiah of Jerusalem was the sole author of the whole book, then this has to qualify, this book has to qualify as some of the Bible's most spectacular prophetic work. He accurately describes Babylonian captivity 150 years after he died. He describes the feelings of the captives. He even names by name the Medo-Persian king who will set them free. He, He talks about Cyrus. Now this is 200 years before Cyrus was born. These chapters, by the way, are not only separated in terms of time and the people they address stylistically, they are also quite different. The first 39 chapters is terse, cutting, sharp syntax. The second portion is much more lyrical and much more poetic. And that in turn has raised all kinds of questions and created incredible debate about whether there's just one author or maybe more than one. Now, traditionally, there's one author, Isaiah ben Amos, Isaiah of Jerusalem. More modern scholars have suggested that there might be two, perhaps even three, one related to each of those historical periods. Sometimes, for those of you who are interested, you'll hear about scholars talking about Deutero-Isaiah or even Trito-Isaiah. That's what they're talking about, okay, the number of authors. In case you're really starting to panic and your blood pressure's starting to go up, I don't really want to go into this debate too much. Okay, I'm just, I'm just letting you know that there is a debate. In one sense, I'd like to say to you, it doesn't really matter that much. Okay, you say, well, how do you work that out? Well, 2 Samuel clearly wasn't written by Samuel. Okay, he died in 1 Samuel at the end of it. Uh, so if he wrote 2 Samuel, this is even more remarkable. He was obviously the catalyst for the work, having authored Samuel, the first book, but it seems that his disciples may well have picked up that unfinished task and carried the Samuel tradition through, giving us 2 Samuel. What I'm saying is 2 Samuel is clearly the word of God. It doesn't really matter who wrote it. Perhaps it's the same with Isaiah. Now, if you push me into a corner and said, come on, Don, put your cards on the table, who do you think? I would, I would stay with the traditional approach. I would stay with the one author, Isaiah ben Amos, Isaiah of Jerusalem. One of the reasons people have gone into multiple authorship, now not all by any means, you know, there are good orthodox scholars who believe that there are multiple authors, but one of the reasons many of the liberal scholars went to a dual or, or even three authors is that they didn't believe or don't believe in supernatural prophecy. They don't believe that Isaiah could have seen and predicted the future so accurately. 
Now, that doesn't cause a problem to me, and I suspect it won't to many of you, because um, I have no problem with the fact that God could have shown Isaiah the future in great detail. Later in the book of Isaiah, Yahweh is challenging the no-God idols of that time, and one of his major apologetic points to show that he is clearly superior to them is the fact that he can tell the future and they can't. So the fact that um, Isaiah is um, perhaps prophesying incredibly accurate doesn't bother me. The accuracy of the predictions, at least in my mind, doesn't disqualify the, po the possibility of Isaiah being the sole author. There is, however, other matters. There's the matter of the very different style of writing in the two sections. Now, that may be significant, but it's also true that the same author can write very different styles, depending on factors like different subject matter, different time periods, even different moods, or maybe even different foods. Who knows? In the New Testament, we have John, who wrote the Gospel of John and also is the author of Revelation. You can't get two different styles in terms of books being written. Perhaps another factor that makes me lean toward one author rather than many is that Jesus seems to attribute the latter portion of the book of Isaiah to Isaiah. He quotes from the latter portion and he says, the prophet Isaiah says, now, of course, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here, but, but he might have quoted from 2 Samuel and said, Samuel says as well. Nevertheless, it does make me lean slightly toward the traditional approach. All I'm trying to do here is, is, is acknowledge that scholarship is divided about this. You can, you can choose whichever actually you want and you feel has the most weight for you uh, without departing from orthodoxy, Okay. It doesn't require a departure from orthodoxy to recognize there might have been more authors than one. As I've read Isaiah over the last months, one thing has struck me really forcefully, and I want to note it here because it will come up again as we study. Isaiah addresses in his words present historical realities, and proper, condition, proper study has to take those conditions into account, which is why I gave you that kind of convoluted um, historical sort of picture of the day that he lived in. You have to come to grips with that in order to be able to understand what he is saying to his readers and through them to us. There's an, idea of there's an idea that scholars speak about when they're trying to convey the idea of proper historical study. They say, it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. So we have to find out what did it mean to them, and thereby perhaps to us. So I acknowledge the truth of that, and I'm trying to do due diligence with that. But what I do notice with Isaiah's prophecy is that the present historical context that he speaks to doesn't always seem to exhaust what he's saying. And I suggest that as you read Isaiah, you do it with theological bifocal glasses, okay? Now, I'm sure you're familiar with bifocals. They have two lenses in the one pair of glasses. The upper portion of the lens allows you to look up and see things that are in the distance clearly, while the lower portion, if you cast your eyes down, allows you to see what is, what is in front of you and it allows you to see that clearly. And Isaiah seems to deal with historical issues, things that are immediately before him. He speaks the word of the Lord into those things. But as you look at them, 
there does seem to be times when you can accurately look up with those bifocal lenses and see echoes of something that is beyond his immediate context. Sometimes there's an echo of something that's to come or something that has been in the past that Isaiah seems to be speaking to as he's addressing that immediate issue. For example, that verse I quoted to you before, Isaiah chapter 7, most of you are very familiar with it. You've heard it spoken at a hundred Christmas services. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Very famous words. We all imagine that Isaiah is looking up and prophesying hundreds of years down the line that there will one day be the Virgin Mary and her offspring, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. But, but he's, that's not what he was doing. That's not what he was speaking to. He was speaking into an immediate historical context. The word virgin there, by the way, in the Hebrew doesn't necessarily mean a woman that hasn't been with a man. It means a young woman of marriageable age. And what Isaiah says, if you look at that prophecy, is that she will bear a child, she will call his name Emmanuel, and before he's two or three years old, those two kings, Pekah and Rezin, that are bothering you will be gone. Some, some scholars even say that Emmanuel was one of Isaiah's children. So he's looking at immediate historical context, speaking these words into that situation. And, and yet, as you look up, as you lift your eyes up through those bifocal distant lenses, you see Matthew. Chapter 1, verse 22, 23, where he picks up those words and amplifies them and gives them a meaning beyond the immediate that Isaiah was speaking to. So you're constantly reading Isaiah with bifocals, sometimes looking forward, sometimes looking back. For example, in Isaiah chapter 14, Isaiah is speaking to the king of Babylon, a present reality. But as he speaks to the arrogance and pride of this particular king, it's almost, you, you see quite clearly that the words he speaks are not exhausted by this immediate historical figure. This time not looking forward, but looking back, Isaiah says, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. He's speaking to the historical king, but beyond the historical king, in the distant past, there's another figure of ultimate arrogance, Lucifer, son of the morning. As you read Isaiah, and I'm hoping that you'll do that over this next little while, go back and have a read. One of the phrases, you underline it when you see it, and you'll be amazed how often it comes up. Isaiah says, on that day, or something similar. I counted, and I counted quickly, I may have miscounted, but I counted 63 times where, it, where I found it used in the book. And Isaiah uses that phrase to describe a day of God's visitation and judgment, and sometimes liberation. When he says, on that day, there is often both negative and positive connotations with regard that moment of God's visitation. So he's using that word to describe historical days that would come in his time, and they did come just as he prophesied. However, in those words, if you look at them with both bifocals, you, you see he is describing 
that there are clear echoes beyond just the historical context that he's describing. That there are principles of the way God moves and judges and liberates that are true of other days that will come and that will be ultimately true of that one day that the Bible describes as the day of the Lord, on that day. So you see these consistent echoes through Isaiah. It's almost looking like Isaiah is looking at a mountain or a high hill directly and presently in front of him. I think we've got a picture. Have we? Okay, a little dark down the bottom, but you can see the, the foothills leading up to the mountains behind the foothills. And it's almost like as Isaiah is speaking, he's speaking to those immediate foothills that are before him. But if you look through that bifocal perspective, you see that there are hills behind the hills and ultimately mountains and even mountains beyond that. And, and Isaiah is like that. Now, I know that you'll be relieved to know, since there's 66 chapters in the book, that we're not going to go through chapter by chapter. We're not going to go through verse by verse. We're going to try and look at chunks and pick out the main themes that Isaiah presents to us, speaks to his listeners and readers in that time, and then beyond them to us. One of the things that Isaiah forces us to face up to is the massive problem of the difference between that exists between the people of God as they should be over against the people of God as they presently are. It's the problem of the actual versus the ideal. And he says, you are called to be this. I chose you to be this, and you are this. And the massive question that is posed by the book of Isaiah is how can this present people, corrupt and wicked as they are, become this, the promised people, the children of Abraham who will be a blessing to all nations? And the remainder of the book, that, that question comes up in the first chapters, and the remainder of the book is the answer to that question. It shows us how it's possible. And I know I'm jumping way ahead, but we'll see later in the book that it becomes possible through the mysterious work of a figure called the servant of the Lord. As, as we go through, we see that Israel are deaf, dumb, and blind. They are, as, they are tarred with the same brush that the nations that surround them are. And we are wondering all the time, how can this people become that? And, and it's almost like it's narrowed down and narrowed down until there is one. And Isaiah constantly says things like, I looked to see that there would be somebody and there was none. So my own hand goes into the situation. And ultimately we come down to this one figure, this incredibly mysterious servant figure upon whom the possibility of God's people becoming the people they were meant to be hangs, hinges, and pivots, and we'll see that. As I finish this message, okay, just this introductory message, let me very, very briefly look at Isaiah ben Amos, Isaiah of Jerusalem as a person. What do we know of him? Well, from this book, actually very little. He's self-effacing. He speaks very, very little about his person or his circumstances. Most of what we know about Isaiah of Jerusalem actually comes from other sources, from Jewish historical sources, perhaps particularly the historian Josephus. Josephus tells us that Isaiah was royal born, that he was brought up in the royal court. He was apparently the grandson of King Joash. That made him a cousin to the king that was reigning 
at the start of the book, King Uzziah. So he's raised in the court. He has status. He has wealth. He has the best education that the, the times afforded. We know that he was married and that his wife was a prophetess, although we are not told anything that she said. He had at least two sons, possibly three, if Emmanuel was his son. All of those sons have interesting names, very prophetic names. The two that are clearly mentioned in the book, their names sum up the focal message of his prophecies. Mahershal Hashbaz is the first. Don't even think about calling your son that, okay? <laughs> Don't even think about it. It literally means haste the booty, speed the spoil. And what he's saying, <laughs> it's Hebrew, not English, okay? Um, what he's saying is judgment is coming, and it's coming quickly. And then the second son, Shia Jashub, which means a remnant will return. That's the note of hope. Judgment and hope, they go together all the way through this book, judgment and hope. He'll be talking about judgment. He'll insert a, notion, a, a, a little portion of hope. And then over in these chapters, he'll be talking about hope, and he'll insert a little no, notion of judgment. He moves abruptly and sometimes disconcertingly between these two themes. What he's saying is trouble is coming, and it's coming quickly. Shia Jashub means a remnant will return. Though there's judgment, there will be hope. The bad news, which is contained mostly in the first 39 chapters, is that Jerusalem will be judged, sacked, looted, and spoiled. The good news, mostly in the second part of the book, is that there's still a future for God's people. He hasn't given up. A remnant will survive, and ultimately, through the work of this mysterious servant, will flourish. According to chapter 1, verse 1, Isaiah's ministry spanned the reign of at least four, most probably five kings. And he mentions Uzziah, who was mostly a good king, had a long reign of 52 years. You may remember, finished rather ignominiously when he tried to take presumptuously the role of the priest and God smote him with leprosy. His son, Jotham, ruled as vice-regent with Uzziah, while Uzziah was a leper, they ruled together for 10 years, and then after his father died, he ruled for another nine, mostly a good king. We will come up against this king in our studies. His name is Ahaz. He was a wicked king, and we will encounter him, encounter him when Isaiah challenges and confronts his behavior from chapter 7 on. Hezekiah follows him. Hezekiah, mostly a good man. He reigns for 29 years, and then his son, Manasseh. Now, Manasseh isn't mentioned in this list. Um, the first four are, Manasseh isn't. He was Judah's, probably Judah's worst king. He reigned for 53 disastrous years. He plunges Judah into judgment, and tradition tells us that it was Manasseh who ordered Isaiah's death. Quite a way to go. Had him stuffed in a hollow log and then the log was sawn in two. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 37 talks about that. Some, it says, were sawn in two. And traditionally, that was Isaiah killed by Manasseh. Now, homework, okay? Some of you are having sort of, you know, you're starting to tremble, go into sort of shock and you're thinking, oh my God, no, 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 no. Yes, yes, yes. Okay? Sometimes when I ask Beckett, my little grandson, 
you know, when he's done something really bad, I said, what did mummy say? And he goes, no, no, no. <laughs> and I said, but what did you say? And he said, I said, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so the homework is yes, yes, yes. Would you read the first five chapters of Isaiah? Okay, you've got two weeks to do it in. We will have a pop quiz. Those of you, those of you who fail will be sawn in two. Okay. <laughs> or, or some other thing will work out. Read the first five chapters, okay? And if you want to you know, be really diligent, you can read the first 12 if you want to. You've got two weeks to do it because next week we've got Daniel Brown with us, which we're really looking forward to. But the week after that, God willing, we'll come back and start to work our way through um, this incredible book, okay? So I hope the historical context hasn't um, done your head in. Uh, hang in there with us because I think there's much in this book that will really bless you. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.